ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, just to give you a little heads up, we're going to be uh, in 1 Timothy and also in a little bit of Romans and Galatians as well. So, um, and you can follow along if you want or you can just uh, sit back and listen. I'll tell you when to turn. Um, and you can do that. But we have been working our way through 1 Timothy, uh, this letter that Paul wrote uh, to his friend Timothy. Uh, and what we have discovered so far is that uh, Timothy is in Ephesus and there are false teachers that are present there. And Paul is instructing Timothy what to do with them. And basically he's saying, tell them to stop with their message. And part of their message, part of their false teaching revolved around a misunderstanding, a misuse of the law of Moses, uh, which we started to look at last week and we're going to talk about this week. Um, I want to just say at the outset that all of us, whether you realize it or not, we come to any text of Scripture, any, uh, any place, we come with a lot of baggage, with preconceived ideas, um, maybe things that we've been taught as we, as we grew up. Um, you need to properly understand uh, the intended purpose of the law of God, um, or uh, you can uh, get derailed very easily. Um, we have to make sure that we understand what God's purpose of it is uh, so that we can properly communicate that to others and even to ourselves as well. Uh, the law is a major, major theme in the pages of Scripture. And if it's not properly understood, uh, it can have very, very destructive consequences. This morning, we're going to talk about the proper use of the law. So let me read this passage in First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Uh, through 11. This is the very word of God. He says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they, are, they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him uh, for guidance. Father, we are desperate to hear from you. And if we're not, we pray that you would make us desperate to hear from you. I pray that we would realize that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Lord, teach us and then empower us to make the changes that are necessary in our lives for your glory and the good of this island. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start off with a question, and the question is this, are we saved by faith alone, or are we saved by faith plus works, place, uh, faith plus what we do? 
Now, I would imagine that most, if not all, people in here would stand up quickly and say, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And you might even quote a verse uh, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, for by grace have you been saved uh, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And you would say that ends the discussion completely, right? I mean, you can't be clearer than that. Well, the problem is, is that James kind of throws a wrench into this uh, whole thing when he says in James chapter 2, verse 24, see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so we have to ask the question, um, what does he mean? Are we saved by faith alone? Is Paul right? Or are we saved by faith plus works? Is James right? Because they're both in the Bible. The answer to this question has actually divided millions of people for thousands of years. Um, and maybe you have some confusion about the law of God. Am I to obey it? Am I not to obey it? What do I do with the law of God? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we go in that, I always want to define terms. Um, what do we mean by the law? What do we mean by works? So saved by works or you're not saved by works. What do we mean by that? Or the works of the law. So let me just give you a, just a brief history. Um, when shortly after God delivered his people, they were in Egypt for over 400 years enslaved, and then God delivered them in a miraculous way, and he took them into the wilderness, and then he gave them his law. Now we know this law as the Ten Commandments. Um, Thou shalt have no other gods before me and such. Um, now what I want to remind you of that is that this is not God's list of suggestions to be considered. They were God's commandments to be followed. And there was punishment for any violation of these laws. Punishment ultimately resulting in death for violation of any of these laws. The law was the perfect standard of righteousness that God required of all of his people. The law told the people who God was and what he required of them, and how they could be like him and reflect his character in a world that desperately needed him. So to go against any of a single law was to miss the mark, and to miss the mark of God's perfect standard was, in fact, to sin. And God makes this very clear, what happens to sinners in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, says this, the soul who sins shall die. And Paul echoes this truth in the New Testament in Romans 6.23 where he says this, the wages of sin is death. Death. The payment for your sins is death. Sin includes any disobedience against the law of God, whether it's huge, like murder, or whether it's really small, like that little white lie that you told yesterday. That's no big deal. It's not going to upset the universe, right? Sin is any violation of God's law. And because of our standing with God, we have to make sure that we understand this properly. We can never do or perform perfect obedience before God. We can never do that. We will always be imperfect in this life. And what I want to remind you is that God demands perfect obedience. He demands perfection. And imperfection, in, uh, imperfect obedience in the end is disobedience. Okay? Imperfect obedience is in the end 
disobedience. And if anyone thinks that they can achieve perfect obedience in this life, you really don't understand what the word perfect means. You don't get it. Well, James chapter 2 helps us. In verse 10, he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. You hear that? So if you were to take the several hundred laws in the Old Testament and you were to say, I kept these 450 and just violated this one, you're guilty, James is saying, of the whole law of God. And then when you take into consideration the fact that Jesus pushed the law internal, right? Where he said, no, it's not just the outward acts. It's not just, you know, what you're doing externally, but it's also the motivation of your heart. It's also, God is looking at the heart. Do you have pure motives in doing this? In fact, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about this. Just give me, let me give you one example. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Right? So adultery is actually going and, and, and um, uh, having sexual relations with someone who's not your wife or your husband. Right? And so most of the people probably say, I didn't do that. Here's what Jesus says. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What? So it's not just the physical act. It's the mental act as well. My goodness. I'm guilty of that. I am not perfect. I have not kept the law of God. And my fir firm belief is this, that even our best acts of obedience are all tainted with some degree of sin, whether in a large amount or a small amount. I personally don't believe that I've ever done anything in my life with 100% pure motivation. It's always tainted with some kind of selfishness or whatever it may be. In the words of the Puritans, here's what one said. I love this quote. My best prayers are stained with sin, my penitential tears are so much impurity. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. And I would say, amen, that's what I do. That's what I need as well. Because we are in need of perfect obedience, but incapable of perfect obedience, then that perfect obedience must come from outside of us. It must be given to us as a gift, something that we cannot earn. And this is exactly, exactly what God has done. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as we look through this a little bit more, beginning in verse 9. The context of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans was that he is addressing both Jews and Greeks, which means that he is addressing everyone. And he begins by addressing the spiritual condition of the Gentiles, uh, the Greeks, um, which the Jews would have looked at and said, those people are disgusting. They are godless. They are uh, on their way to an eternity away from God. And he lists these things. If you were to look at uh, Romans chapter 1, you would see that. And every Jew would say, oh my goodness, these people are so bad. And then Paul turns the tables and says, you're just as spiritually dead as they are. You're just as bad. And in fact, they thought they were good. They thought they were keeping the law of God. But Paul quickly points out that they were just as spiritually dead, even though they had been given the law. And he says this in Romans 3, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what he says. He says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, bo that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All right? Those are universal negatives, which include everyone, right? There is no one who is righteous. There's no one who seeks for God. There's no one who understands God. I don't care if you're a Jew who's been given the law. You have not kept it the way that God requires. So then how is a person made right with God if it isn't by keeping the law? All right, God gave us the standards. If I can't keep them, then how am I made right with God? Well, beginning in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, he tells us, he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Once again, who's under the law? All of us are under the law, right? We're all under the law of God. We almost obey the law of God even if we don't acknowledge it. All right, let me give you an example. If you were to get on I-45 going northbound today, you could say, I do not acknowledge the 65 mile an hour speed limit and I'm going to go 100. Whether you acknowledge it or not does not mean that the state trooper that's going to take, pull you over doesn't acknowledge it. Oh, I get it. You don't believe in that law. You can go. No, you are subject to that law whether you acknowledge it or not. And the same is true with every law of God. You could say, I don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter. He is your creator. You are subject to his laws, whether you acknowledge them or not. And so once again, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So once again, we are all lawbreakers. Therefore, we're all guilty before God. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, those are the touch knots and uh, do this, do this, don't do that. That's all. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, now let me stop and just clarify some words. Justification, justified. He says no one will be justified in his sight. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It means to be viewed with absolutely no sin, no remnants of sin whatsoever. And what he is saying in this passage is that the law cannot make someone righteous. It cannot do that. Because the only thing that the law does is it reveals where you have not been righteous. That's what it does. Verse 21 begins with a very important word. What is that word? But. But. Paul has just declared that every person, every person is a sinner, guilty before God, and that the law cannot save anyone because it just exposes how far we fall short of God's perfect standard, which is required of all of us. So is there any hope for us? Paul says, yes. And in verse 21, he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God knowing that we could never be perfect provides that perfect righteousness that we need. And that perfect righteousness comes from outside of us. And whose righteousness is it? It has to be a person's. It has, man sinned, so man has to live up to the law. Whose righteousness is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the righteousness of Jesus, who came down to earth as a human being and lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. In a sense, Jesus was saying this, Jason is going to lie 
and to lust and to be selfish and all these other things. Therefore, I will come and I will be truthful and I will remain pure and I will be selfless. And then I will willingly be punished for every time that Jason lied and lusted and was selfish and whatever else he may have done. Jesus lived the life that I could not live, that you could not live either. We see this truth in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. It says this, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, all right, the many were made sinners. Adam represented us all. So when he fell, we all fell, okay? So by one man's obedience, whose obedience is that? Jesus, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He lived the life that you and I could not live. He was perfectly obedient. So the righteousness or perfect obedience we need in order to have favor with God, if you will, has been offered for us, has been provided for us, and is offered as a gift to us. We see this as we continue in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. He says this, for all, there's that universal negative again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how in the world do I get this gift? How do I get this gift of perfect righteousness because mine is horrible? It will never get me into the presence of God. I need something from outside. How in the world do I get this gift? gift of righteousness that makes me fit for the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is by believing in Jesus, by placing your faith in Jesus. And the result, if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, is a wonderful, wonderful result. Because if you were to read Romans chapter 1 and 2, you would see that we are enemies of God, that God's wrath is being poured out on us, and that no one will ever escape that. God is our enemy, He's fighting against us, and God will always, always win. He will not lose. You do not want to be on the wrong side of God. So what happens as a result of us recognizing that we could never be perfect, and Jesus providing that perfect righteousness, and us embracing it by faith? Romans 5, 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? God is no longer our enemy. God is no longer fighting against us. God now welcomes us into his presence. How amazing is that? We have peace with the one person in the universe that you really, really need peace with. We have peace with God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We were lawbreakers deserving eternal punishment, but Jesus did what we could not do by obeying the law perfectly. And now when we put our faith in him, we have peace with God. We're right with God. We're no longer his enemies. So let's go back to our original question. If we cannot gain God's favor and be saved by our obedience, then is there a continuing purpose for the law? Do we need the law anymore? And Paul answers that question, I believe, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you to turn back there. He answers it actually in several places in the New Testament, but we're going to start in 1 Timothy and we'll branch off to some of those. We're going to spend the rest of our time uh, talking about this. Now here's what you need to understand is that a misunderstanding of the law 
uh, can lead to two basic extremes, all right? It can either lead to legalism or license. Legalism or license, Those, and both are dangerous, and they need to be uh, avoided at all costs. Legalism basically says this, that you are to perform certain duties as a Christian in order to gain or keep God's approval of you. God will love you as long as you don't lie or steal or commit adultery or whatever. As long as you do go to church, God will continue to love you. As long as you do give to the church, God will continue to love you. But as soon as you stop doing that, God no longer loves you anymore. <clears throat> you might even say that the legalist views their relationship with God almost as a professional relationship. Think about a landlord and a tenant. A landlord and a tenant have a professional relationship. As long as the tenant continues to pay rent and abide by the rules of the apartment complex or whatever it is, they are allowed to stay there. But as soon as they stop doing either, they stop paying rent or they become disorderly and don't follow the rules of the complex, they are kicked out. Their relationship with the landlord is a conditional relationship. And you can even see that there might be a degree of pride here, right? I paid my rent for the past five years every day on the first day of the month. I have been a model resident of this complex. I have a reason to boast. There's a reason that I can stay here because I am a good person. That's how a legalist views their relationship with God. Now the problem with this is that at some point or several points in their life, they will realize that they cannot live up to that standard. They cannot obey all of the rules. They cannot pay their spiritual rent, so to speak, on time. And at that point, they become devastated because God is going to kick them out of his family because their relationship, in their mind, is based on their performance before God. Am I checking all the boxes? It is that professional relationship that they have with God. Paul addresses this once again in many places, but particularly Galatians chapter 2. And if you want to turn there, you can. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16 uh, through 21. Galatians chapter 2, here's what he says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You can never do enough, right? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Skipping down to verse 19, Galatians chapter 2. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he is speaking figuratively there. And he was declaring this amazing, wonderful uh, New Testament truth of what is known as union with Christ. Union with Christ. When you believe in Christ, you are united with Christ. He is in you and you are in him, spiritually speaking. This wonderful truth is demonstrated in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, but you can just listen. Jesus is praying for his disciples. 
And then he's praying for the disciples that would come after them, which is us. And he's praying to the Father. And he's asking the Father for many things regarding us. And here's what he says in verse 21. That they, talking about us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then verse 22. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Do you understand what's going on? If we are truly united with Christ, then that means when Jesus was crucified and punished for our sins, we were in Christ and we were crucified as well at that time. Once again, not physically. That's why Paul can say, I was, I've been crucified with Christ. We were in Christ. And he, we, when he was crucified, we were crucified. And since he has died to sin and is no longer subject to the condemnation of sin because he took the wrath of God on himself, we in him are no longer subject to the condemnation or the consequences of sin either because we are in him. There is nothing, I want to repeat, there's nothing that you and I could ever do to earn God's favor. Nothing. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. So that's one extreme legalism where I'm trying to work my way and not realizing that it's all been paid for me, that God loves me just like he loves his own son, Jesus, because I am his son. You are his son or daughter today, and that will not be broken. The other extreme is license. A misunderstanding of the law leads us into license. License basically says this. I'm saved from God's wrath. All of my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven me. Therefore, it does not matter what I do anymore. I can do whatever I want. I can live exactly the same way that I lived before. I can do this or that. It doesn't matter because I've been saved by grace, and there's nothing that I can do. This relationship might be compared to, uh, think about in the 1600s when the, when the slave trade was going on. And I would imagine that there were some people, I heard about some people who would actually uh, look at slavery and say, this is so disgusting, this is so bad. And so they would actually purchase slaves in order to set them free. They would lay down the money and they would say, hey, I have purchased you, you are free now. You're, you don't have to follow me. You don't have to come home with me and, and listen to what I say. You are on your own. You're not accountable to me. You don't have to obey me. You can be your own person. This is how a person who falls into the error of license, they're like, I am free from my sins. There's no condemnation for me, so I am good. I can do whatever I want. Paul speaks against this, particularly in Romans chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 through 7. Once again, if you want to turn there, you can turn there with me. Romans chapter 6, he says this. He's just talked about the grace of God in, in chapter 5. He says this, what, then, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's that uh, truth about union with Christ again. Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That phrase that we read earlier in verse 4 that says, walk in newness of life, reminds me of Paul's uh, words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says this, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are new people who have a new love and a new desire to do what is right. We will never have perfect obedience in this life, and that's why Christ came and lived the life that we could not live and then died the death that we did not want to die. Think about this as well. Think about Pharaoh. Think about the book of Exodus where, once again, the people of Israel, God's people had been in cruel slavery to the Egyptians for 400 years. And God raises up this man named Moses, and he says, go to Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world, and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, let my people go. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, let my people go that they may serve me. Right? This is not God meeting the people at the border of Egypt and saying, okay, I've done my part. I got you out of this place. Right? This is where we part ways. Good luck. Stay safe. I'm going this way. You go that way. No. This was a transfer of ownership. Right? They were owned by a cruel master who was intent on their destruction. And now they have been bought or transferred to a new owner who is benevolent and who is intent on their flourishing, on them prospering, in the land. They're not on their own. And so the question, no, we can't. The answer to the question, no, we can't disregard the commands of God because we're no longer under the law but under grace. We are obligated to obey them, but we obey them now with a new motivation, not to gain God's favor, but because we already have God's favor because of what Jesus has done for us having seen and recognized all that God has done to save us and to welcome us, us into his family, we obey him out of a deep sense of gratitude, knowing that every single command he gives is given for his glory and our good. There are no arbitrary commands in there. God is not up there saying, oh, they're having fun in this regard. I'm going to put a law down so they can't do that anymore, right? No, there's no arbitrary uh, laws or commands God looks and says, this is destructive. And I know that you don't realize this right now. And I know the world is telling you it feels so good. It must be right. Go after it. And God is saying, no, because in the end it will lead to destruction. It will leave you emptier than you thought you could ever be. It will leave you devastated. And I don't want that to happen. I know you don't understand this right now. It's kind of like a parent, right? Who says, you don't understand why I'm saying no right now. But it's ultimately for your good. I'm not just trying to be a jerk here. I have your best interest in mind. And this is what God was saying with every single law. 
God is not this cosmic killjoy in the, in the sky that's just like, nope, I'm bored. I'm going to make you bored, right? That's not what he's doing. His laws are intended for our good and his glory. So let's finally get to the question, what is the purpose of the laws that are laid down in the, in the, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament? Because there's a ton of them. I submit to you that there are three purposes for the law and for us uh, maintaining and holding on to the law. The first is condemnation. The second is restraint. And the third is sanctification. Okay, so hold on. We'll talk about those. Condemnation, restraint, and sanctification. First of all, condemnation. We have to begin here because all of us come into this world as enemies of God. We all come into this world as sinful. All right? And we need to know, understand, what is it that I did wrong? Why am I guilty before your throne? Why would I be guilty in the final judgment? And God says, let me tell you exactly. And he lists the laws. He gives us the law. You've broken this and this and this and this. Okay. So condemnation is the first, uh, the first purpose of the law. And we actually see this in our passage of 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you've, uh, you're not there, turn back there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. He begins by affirming the goodness of the law. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if someone uses it legitimately. And we've just talked about how you can use it illegitimately, either license or legalism. That's an illegitimate use of the law. That's what they were doing in the time of, of uh, when Timothy was in Ephesus. All right, we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. Then he goes on to tell who the law is actually for, but he begins by telling him who the law is not for. And in verse 9, here's what he says. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Okay, let me stop there for a second. I just want to make sure that we understand everything that uh, we're reading here. It's not laid down for the just. Who are the just? Well, if you were to look at Romans chapter 3 once again, Paul said that there is none righteous, no, not one. So there is none who are what? Just, okay? So in a sense, the law applies to all of us, right? So, but I think, and so that there is definitely, the Bible talks about that, but I think here the way that Paul uses just is Paul is talking about those who have been justified in Jesus because of their faith in Jesus, that the law is not written for them. And the reason that it's not written for them is because they have recognized already their sin and their need of a Savior there. They are just because of their, right, uh, because of their faith. And now, according to Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to them. If you were to read through the Psalms and Proverbs, what you would see is that you would see this contrast between the righteous and the wicked— and the righteous in the Psalms and Proverbs are not righteous because they perfectly keep the law of God. They never sin against God. No, they're righteous because they follow God in faith. They hold to God. They realize that he is their only hope in this life. And so they're called righteous. So the law is not for the righteous because they've already recognized their sin and its consequences. So the law, in, in this sense, showed them what God's perfect standard was, how they could never live up to it, and then in desperation, they said, I need to find saving from my sin, and they searched all around, and they found only one who qualified as a real Savior, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, and they embrace him. Paul talks about this use of the law also in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. So once again, if you want to uh, turn there, you can. Galatians chapter 3, Beginning in verse 10, here's what he says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Do you hear what he's saying? You are cursed, separated from God, if you do not keep all of the law of God. Your whole 80, 90 years of existence, you have to keep every single law of God perfectly, or you are under a curse. Everyone in here, including myself, is under a curse, and everyone in the whole world is under a curse. All right? Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's already said this. He said that in the Old Testament, now he's saying it in the New Testament. But the faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you want to choose to live by faith, you're saved. If you want to choose to live by the law, you can do that, but you will be condemned. Verse 13, Christ, I love this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Skipping down to verse 19, he says this, Why the law? Why then the law? It was added because of the transgression. And that's what we've talked about. This is, the, this is the use of the law. It shows us where we have messed up, where we have failed God. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before the law came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay, so let me explain this um, quickly here. So the law actually led us to Christ. The law, here's what it said. You cannot keep me but I know someone who did. That's what the law says. You cannot keep me. It's impossible, but I know someone who did. And the law points us to the one who did. That's what the law does, according to Paul in this passage. Those who don't know God have not recognized this yet. They think that they are okay. They're not that bad. They're comparing themselves to others. They're kind of like thinking that in the end, God is going to grade on a curve and I'm going to be okay. God is just going to say, oh, I know you do these things, but I'm just, I, I'm not going to hold those against you. And they think that in the final judgment, they will be okay, and they are wrong. And God, by the use of the law, is kind of giving them a heads up, in a sense, and saying, you will stand before me one day, and you will be condemned to eternal punishment. Let me tell you exactly why. Not only have I given you the law in your hearts, but I've written it down for you, and you said, no, thank you. I will not follow that. So God, in a sense, like I said, is giving them a heads up so that they're not caught off guard in the judgment. And then he gives these three sets of couplets here regarding the people who need the law, uh, once again, so that they understand exactly why they are under condemnation. Uh, he says this, the law is for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. 
Okay, I just want to go through these quickly. We're not going to go into any detail here. Lawless means having, uh, not having or knowing or acknowledging the law. Not having or knowing or acknowledging the law. Disobedient means to not subject oneself to, to authority, right? In other words, they know what God said, and they either don't believe in God, or they say, God will not tell me what to do. I don't care what you say, God. You cannot tell me what to do. I'm my own person. I don't follow your rules. Going along with this, the ungodly are those who have no reverence for God. They don't acknowledge his greatness, and they may even mock him. And we see this all the time in our culture, mocking God. That's what you believe. That's what you, those are archaic beliefs. And they start to mock God. Sinners, we've talked about this. Those are those who miss the mark of God's perfect standard of holiness. Unholy means that they don't treat God as holy. They have no regard for their duty towards God. They're not accountable to him at all. And finally, profane is those who are void of religion or piety, uh, those who lack all relationship or affinity to God. And if you were to look at these, you see that this is how we relate to God. That's how we view God. It's how these ungodly people view God. And it seems to correspond to the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not, uh, you shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This seems to correspond with those, our relationship with God. And then if you look at the text in First Timothy chapter 1, you see that he goes on in order the next five commandments. Commandments 5 through 9. And he lists these. Look at this with me. The fifth commandment is honor your father. And in Exodus chapter 20, is honor your father and mother. Those who need the law, according to Paul here in 1 Timothy 1, strike their fathers and mothers. The sixth commandment is you shall not kill. Those who need the law, according to Paul here, are those who, uh, uh, who uh, are murderers. The seventh commandment deals with sexual sin. Do not commit adultery. Those who need the law are sexually immoral. They are men who practice homosexuality. The eighth commandment in Exodus chapter 20 is you shall not steal. Don't steal. Those who need the law, according to Paul here in 1 Timothy, are enslavers. They steal people. And then the ninth commandment is you shall not lie. And those who need the law here in our passage are liars and perjurers. So you can see how it follows that pattern. Now, Paul does not mention the 10th commandment, which is, you shall not covet. And I'm not sure why he doesn't mention that. But I do find it interesting that when he's talking in Romans chapter 7, and he's talking about the same reason for the purpose of the law to expose sin, the only one of the 10 commandments that he mentions there is the last one, you shall not covet. And he goes into great detail talking about that one at that point. Here he skips it, and he just gives this catch-all phrase, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And this brings us full circle. We come back to sound teaching, sound doctrine. That word sound literally means healthy. It means healthy. It's healthy because it brings life. The letter of the law kills because it just tells you what you've done wrong. It shows you the cancer, but it doesn't tell you how to deal with it. The gospel gives life. That's why it's healthy. 
So the first purpose of the law is to condemn. It points out sin. And so if you're going to preach the law, do it, but use it as an entrance into preaching the gospel. I'm going to tell you the law so that you can see how sinful you are. The second use of the law, just really quickly, is this, that it's used to restrain sin. And this is also seen in our passage. And this is all I want to say regarding this. Aren't you glad that there are laws on the book in Galveston and the rest of the United States that are based on the moral code of God that say you shall not kill or you shall not steal? Isn't that awesome? Because if they weren't there, there would be dead bodies all over, right? Your house would get broken into daily until there was nothing left to take in your house. And people would be like, I can do whatever I want. There's no law against it. Isn't it awesome that if someone violates that law, they're taken off into jail so that they can't do it to anyone else? I'm thankful for that. The law restrains evil. And even someone who's thinking about committing a crime might think, if I do this, I may get in trouble and I may be locked up for years or the rest of my life. And so the law has that restraining ability. Paul talks about this in Romans 13 where he says, the, the government does not bear the sword in vain. You cross the government, they have the authority to punish you as they enforce the law. So that's the second use of the law. The third one is in sanctifying. The third and final use involves um, how the law aids us in sanctification. Now we know if the law cannot save, it certainly cannot sanctify us. All right? The law has no power to sanctify us. And when I say sanctify, that's one of those churchy terms, it means to make holy. To make holy. All right? We are unholy. The law aids us in becoming more holy. How does it do this? Well, we go right back to the first use of the law, right? Because the law says, here's what you're doing wrong. Do you really want to please God? Do you really, you just said, man, God, I don't want anything hindering my relationship. I don't want to, you've done so much for me. I do not want to, to displease you at all. I want to do everything that pleases you. And God's like, okay, this is an area in your life that you need to work on. Oh, I didn't know that was there. Okay, okay. The law pointed that out. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on that. You know, that's what the law does. It has that sanctifying ability. As it points out those things in our lives, we identify them, and then we pray for God's Holy Spirit to kill those things in our life. God, get rid of my lust. Get rid of my greed. Get rid of these things in my life. Help me to walk in a manner that pleases you. Without the law, you don't know what you're doing wrong. The law tells us. It's kind of like when a husband makes his wife mad, and he comes up to her and he's like, what did I do? If you don't know, then just forget it, right? God says, I'll tell you what you did so that you can correct it, right? So wives, be more like God in this regard, right? It will make it so much easier for us. But that's what the law does. It says, this is what you've done wrong. I'm not going to hold it from you so that you can correct it, so that you can walk after righteousness. So this is what the law does. And if anyone ever comes to you, this is what I want to say, if anyone ever comes to you and says, it tells you that you need to keep the commands of God in order to gain or keep God's favor, you just tell them that is impossible. No one can do that. Your acts of obedience do not save you. Rather, they demonstrate that you've been changed. They demonstrate that you've been saved, that, you have, that you're a new person, that you have a new love for God that you didn't have before. And that you know what God has done for you and you desire to please him above all else. So are we to obey the commands of God? The answer is absolutely yes. We are to obey the commands of God. But our obedience will never be perfect. Therefore, it cannot save. What saves is God's amazing grace. Because according to Romans chapter 4, says this, verse 20 and 21, the law 
came in to increase the trespass. It just revealed what sin is. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As the law was saying, you sinned here, you sinned here. You're just like, you're getting under the weight of it. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm sinking down. And then grace comes in like a wave and just washes away all those sins. God's love, God's grace super abounds. God's grace is greater than all of our sins. And so what is the relationship between what God has done and what we are to do? I think Martin Luther summed it up well when he said this. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But that faith is never alone. It is accompanied by acts of obedience which demonstrate a new life that loves the God that saved it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. It's not a burden, Lord. Is is there for our good. It's there to show us that we're in need of a Savior and then how to please that Savior, to, to, uh, to live a life of gratitude. And so I pray if anyone doesn't know you today, Lord, that they would embrace you, that they would stop striving uh, to earn your favor, but that they would realize that Jesus has already done that and place their faith in him. And I pray this in his name. Amen.